Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, and today's show is pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in. But you can always reach me by going to the website. That's www.agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Just click on the contact button and send an email, and I'll be glad to get an answer back to you just straight away. Today we have a special treat because we've got Mr. Bob McCarron in the studio with us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Louis. And, of course, Bob, you are, I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say expert on older cars and i know you've got several old fords yourself but you know just a little bit about chevrolet as well don't you yes not really an expert just like to read the history of, of the automobile yeah well expert-ish there you go <laughs> chevrolet had their 100 year anniversary in 2011 and of course that's been a couple of years ago but there's a huge amount of information out really a sort of an interesting group of people to hear about and know about Chevrolet actually started production in 1912, and the information that I've gathered here has come from Auto Week, Hemings Classic Car Magazines, mm-hmm. Google, and Collectible Automobile Magazines. And Classic Car produced a December 2011 issue that was dedicated to the Chevrolet Centennial, 100 mm-hmm. years. Now, going into the history shows that the person who started the Chevrolet Motor Company was Crapo William Durant. Okay. Yes, that's his real name. (laughs) He went more by William, I think. I would only guess, yeah. In 1911, he partnered with the Swiss barn Louis Chevrolet, a famous race car builder and driver. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people associate the name Chevrolet as being a French name. and Actually, it is a French name, but he was born in Switzerland, not France. Correct. And they manufactured the first Chevrolet for sale to the public called the Classic Six, Mm -hmm. which was a four-door touring model in 1912 with a flathead straight six. Now, why did they call it the Classic Six? Was it just because it had a six-cylinder motor? I guess because a lot of cars those days had actually four-cylinder motors. The V8s hadn't really caught on too much yet, uh, although that was to come. So I would imagine it's probably because of the six-cylinder engine. That's true. That was a big step up from Mm -hmm. the four-cylinders. Of course, the original General Motors cars, the Oldsmobile and such, they had a Mm four-cylinder. Mm-hmm. Now, Durant's automotive background began at the Buick Company, founded by David Dunbar Buick. Okay. In 1904, Durant was promoted from general manager to president of Buick. Mm -hmm. From 1902 to 1906, David Dunbar Buick ran the Buick Company. Mm -hmm. He was an inventor who developed and produced the overhead valve four-cylinder engine used in the Buick automobiles. In those days, cars weren't anything at all, I suppose, like they are now. In that, if a guy was really clever and mechanically inclined, he could more or less start his own car company. We talked a little bit about the Duryea cars and the Duryea brothers, and that's basically what they did is they started the Duryea car company. And the same thing with Buick and, of course, later Henry Ford and Louis Chevrolet. These guys were sort of pioneers, and they weren't huge corporations like we think of today. It's almost unthinkable that an individual could actually start a car company. And just clever guys who were... I guess a lot of times maybe in their garage or something, worked out details, built a car, turned out to be a workable model. They said, hey, somebody will buy this. <laughs> so they got some financial backers. Now, Will Durant wasn't actually an inventor or a mechanic or engineer per se. He was more of a promoter. He was more of a money kind of a guy, good at getting the money together. And that's why he more or less ended up in some of these managerial type positions. That's correct, and the developers and inventors were not always the best money managers. That's right. Well, even like today, that happens. Back years ago, when personal computers were first coming on, there was just 
basically dozens of companies making computers and now all but just maybe the big three or four are gone as it is with cars at one time there was almost a thousand different manufacturers of automobiles in the united states and now they're down to you might argue three <laughs> two and a half to three <laughs> well 1906 mm-hmm. david dunbar buick was ousted from his own company bankers of course they liked the money and the return right. on investment and he wasn't providing that. Also, another fellow, Louis Chevrolet, mm-hmm. he raced the Buicks on the factory racing team. He also had two brothers that raced, yeah. Gaston, mm-hmm. Gaston. 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 <laughs> <laughs> kind of a Cajun accent. I mean, you're an Irishman. You can't say that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and he was later killed in a race. And his other brother was Arthur. Mm-hmm. Louis here has some interesting information on Arthur mm-hmm. Chevrolet. Another person of interest was uh, William H. Little. He was Buick general manager and plant supervisor. Uh huh. So they actually named a car after him. The little little car. Mm-hmm. Right. The little car. <laughs> a little bit before his time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cheaper car. In 1908, Durant incorporated General Motors by trading Buick stock, acquiring Oldsmobile. He used Buick and Olds as the foundation to build General Motors. Mm-hmm. Followed by Oakland, which Pontiac replaced. Mm-hmm. It was Oakland in 1909, Cadillac in 1909, and many other cars, yeah. car companies that he's got. Yeah, so he was really a money kind of a guy. He was the guy who was sort of the mastermind behind General Motors, putting all these different car companies together. He kind of varied from some of the guys like Louis Chevrolet, who I guess today you'd say was kind of a good old boy. He liked cars. He liked working on cars. He liked racing cars. Sort of a man's man kind of a guy. And from what I've gathered, just the flavor I've gotten from reading about him, he wasn't as interested in the money end of it, which is unfortunate because he ended up without a whole lot of it, (laughs) as often happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the stock trading and so forth to farm General Motors was very complicated, and Mm -hmm. we won't go into all that here. Right. And in 1910, Durant was ousted by General Motors after, you know, by the bankers. Again, the bankers, huh? Overexpending, <laughs> overexpanding, overexpending, and starving the company of cash flow. Mm-hmm. Remember, the bankers like money. <laughs> well, that's right. And I guess it's when people put up or invest money, they expect to get a return on it. And guys like Louis Chevrolet and like that, they just thought it was really cool to build the best car, the nicest things, look at the features we can add. Boy, we can engineer this, we can do that. And sometimes they just lost sight of what it all cost. The guys with the purse strings said, hey, wait a minute. We don't care about all that. We just want a car we can sell and make money. We invested this much. We expect this much return. And if you can't get it, we'll get you out of there and get somebody in who can. Not unlike it is today. (laughs) That's right. Well, previously when David Dunbar Buick was ousted from Buick, Louis Chevrolet also left. And in 1911, he built a car, the first Chevrolet automobile, a single car. Durant then founded the Chevrolet Motor Company. Mm The deal was that Durant would find the money backers, and Louis Chevrolet, as you said, would build the cars. Mm-hmm. William Little also joined Durant and GM. Mm-hmm. Durant himself, he envisioned two brands of cars. The low-cost Little automobile right. was introduced the week before the Chevrolet car was introduced in 1912. By 1913, the Chevrolet was cheaper and better than the Little automobile, and the Little was dropped. Yeah, it's kind of hard to have a Little car, <laughs> and the main car is cheaper and more powerful and better, but that's just kind of sort of the way it worked out. Well, Louis Chevrolet wanted to produce an upscale auto with his name on it, but Mm -hmm. Durant wanted a low-price auto to compete with Ford. The Classic 6 was dropped, and Louis departed in 1915, selling his stock to Durant, and that's why he didn't do so well financially. Yeah, Louis Chevrolet, I think, was more interested in racing cars than he was in making money selling cars. I think the challenge to him was more in the design and building and racing and proving and all that. 
Many years later and after several failed business attempts, Lewis Chevrolet actually ended up working at a Chevrolet production line in a factory as a line worker. I think once the challenge of the engineering was over, he pretty much didn't have the interest in the money aspect of it. I think that technical people are often that way. Yes. The challenges in the engineering and the designing and the proving and all that, once they get that, they're really not that interested in the marketing and the money end of it. That's why Durant did as well as he did, and Lewis Chevrolet probably didn't do quite as well. <laughs> yes, Lewis began racing again, mm-hmm. and he founded the Frontenac Motor Company in 1916 to build racing parts, mostly for the Model T Ford. Hmm. As a sideline here, I'm a member of the Baton Rouge chapter of the National AACA Antique Automobile Car Club of right. America, and there are eight chapters in the Louisiana region, by the way, mm-hmm. and we have had visitors to our events in Baton Rouge from Mississippi with their souped-up Frontenac Model Ts. Now, what exactly is Frontenac? Frontenac was the company that Chevrolet formed. The name Frontenac actually came from Frontenac, who was a French soldier and governor general of New France in the New World. And he started a bunch of forts along the Great Lakes region. I guess he was a very popular guy in the area. And Louis Chevrolet, being French, I suppose maybe he decided in honor of him to go ahead and name it that. And, of course, the four-cylinder Model T Ford wasn't known necessarily for performance. It was known as a good, reliable car. I guess with the Fontenac head. Yeah, the uh, well, the guys from Mississippi said that they could beat a Model A any day. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the Model A didn't come out until 1928. But. Right. Boy, that was state-of-the-art technology then. Well, back to the, the AACA. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention that the AACA-sponsored Great Race mm-hmm. is scheduled to come through Baton Rouge on June 28th at 4.45 p.m. Okay. Uh, time's important because these guys really meet their timing. But there'll be a plenty of cars coming through after that time. And it's going to be at the Belle of Baton Rouge. Okay. And we'll be staying there all night. So remember to come out and see these great cars. The local chapter, AACA, Baton Rouge chapter, will also, some of the members will be bringing down their cars to greet the race car drivers and the race cars. And also the spectators can look at uh, some of the members' cars from the local area here. So they can see the race cars as well as a lot of the local people. And I know some of the local guys have some really, really nice automobiles. Yes, and they'll have some old ones down there, too. I believe we'll have a couple Model A's. Then, of course, anything that's 25 years or older qualifies. We have about 50 members in our chapter. Now, several of those guys have more than one car. That's true. Of course, they'll probably only drive one car at a time. <laughs> yeah, it makes it a little <laughs> difficult to drive more than one at a time. But <laughs> yes. Well, and so we look forward to promoting the race. It's right. A- now, is there any cost or any charge to people who come out to see the cars? No, there won't be any charge for the members or for the spectators to come and see the race cars. Oh, really? A, kind of a cool way to spend an afternoon? Yes. And what was the exact date on that again? The cars will be coming in on Friday afternoon on June 28th at 4.45 p.m. And they will be a number of cars, so plan to spend a little time down there. That's right. It's not something you'll just be able to walk in and look at and take off. Right. <laughs> take you a while to see all that. And they will have a finish line there for... And, announce their timing mm-hmm. as they come through. So that's a Baton Rouge finish line, not yes. the national finish line. Correct. Great. Actually, 25 years and older, so some of them aren't that old. But mm-hmm. Well, not you be. and me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 25 years is pretty old, a lot of people. <laughs> yes, they're very serious on their timing, the race rally times, and, of course, they need to be within seconds in order to win. Now, where does the great race actually start out? Well, each year they do a different program, and this year they're going north to south. Mm-hmm. So they have a couple more days after Baton Rouge, and they'll be finished. They are starting at St. Paul, Minnesota this year, 
and we'll be ending up after going through Baton Rouge to Mobile, Alabama for the final ceremonies. Thought we'd talk a little bit about 1914. They had the bow tie logo. That's when they came up with the bow tie. Which right, the little bow tie they still use today on the Chevrolets. And there's a lot of stories on that. It mm-hmm. could have come from the Swiss cross, being that Chevrolet was from Switzerland. Right. Or they say it could have come from a Paris hotel wallpaper that he saw when he was over there racing. Yeah. <laughs> so Now, is Louis Chevrolet credited with the bow tie? I don't know who actually. They didn't. Go into that. Resources didn't say. They farmed that. In 1914, mm-hmm. which he left in 1915. So yes, yeah, so he, he was still he there. Was still there. Yeah, that's actually. I guess it's changed a few times over the years. I know I had a 55 Chevrolet and it had a had it on there, but it wasn't exactly the same. wasn't quite as jazzed up as the modern day bow tie that they use today. Yeah, today they're prominent in the grill. Every model. Yeah, pretty much. A big gold bow tie. Mm-hmm. Well, back to the Chevrolet car in 1915. Durant regained control of General Motors. With the help of big investors and by another complicated stock deal. There you go. <laughs> this inclu- <laughs> included trading GM stockholders five shares of Chevrolet for one GM stock. Okay. From 1916 to 1920, Durant was president of GM. A Chevrolet became a division of GM. Durant brought in Fisher Body, Frigidaire, etc., and kept expanding as usual. Mm-hmm. 1916, Chevrolet Series 490. Big competitor to Ford. Named for the price, $490. Wow. It was an overhead valve, inline four, with an optional electric starter. Which, which was really state-of-the-art at that time. Charles Kettering was responsible mm-hmm. for engineering the electric starter, first used on Cadillac right. in 1912. It made it possible to start the vehicle without manual cranking, allowed women drivers without a chauffeur, and also Kettering engineered the ignition systems and the lighting systems for automobiles. And legend that I heard with Kettering invented electric starter, not long after a good friend of his died from a result of a broken arm he got cranking a car. In those days, the old cranks would kick back and it would snap your arm. This gentleman developed an infection in his arm and died from it. And not long after that is when Kettering put to work to invent the electric starter. Thank God he did. 1917 was Chevrolet's first V8 produced for two years. It was killed mainly due to cost. Mm-hmm. Many believe that the 55 Chevy was the first available with a V8, but... Right, well, that was a 265 cubic inch. In 55. Mm-hmm. And that actually predates Ford's V8, the flathead that we talked about on a previous show. And this was actually an overhead valve V8 engine, which was really state-of-the-art at the time. But it's not a whole, whole lot. I don't know if any of them are actually surviving. I'm sure there's maybe one or two around a museum somewhere. But that engine didn't really, I don't know if it really got into any kind of mass production. They may have built a few of them, but I don't think they really got out there with any great numbers of them. Again, 1917, well, that's way, way back. Yes, Ford V8 was a monoblock V8 in 1932, mm-hmm. which came many years later. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was monoblock first cast in one piece, mm-hmm. which made it a lot cheaper, and it was the first of its kind. And, of course, that was a flathead V8 as opposed to an overhead valve. I think probably the technology maybe wasn't quite there for the overhead valve engine when they came out with it that far back. That's true. Well, in 1917, that was the end of the Light 6 Chevy mm-hmm. engine. And in 1918, they introduced the William Cunson-designed overhead valve four-cylinder, which lasted, by the way, through 1936. Now, in 1920, Chevrolet accounted for 40%, 40% of the GM sales. Mm-hmm. Lewis's brother, Gaston, also won the Indianapolis 500 in 1920 in a Chevrolet race car. And Durant was again ousted from GM. <laughs> there he goes again. <laughs> Alfred Sloan, who ran the company, he kept Chevrolet in the GM product line. Mm-hmm. 
Sloan was later GM president, CEO, and chairman of the board until 1956. He introduced annual styling changes. Some people say planned obsolescence. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nicer way to put it, (laughs) annual styling changes. Yes. And also the pricing structure, you know, starting with Chevrolet and moving up through Cadillac. And, you know, Chevrolet, I think, is still kind of the big gun at General Motors as far as the amount of money it brings in. It's always kind of been the cash cow of the company. Yes, and then Sloan took GM to be the largest industrial enterprise in the world. In 1921, Chevrolet again won the Indianapolis 500. Wow, there you go. Until Ford came out with that V8. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much the end of Chevrolet's winning days right about up in there. Hey, we're going to have to take a quick little break. Be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a little advice for those who overshare on Facebook. I know, I friended you. But please, I don't need to know what you had for breakfast or where you just scratched. I don't need to know your Uncle Dominic's political beliefs or that your mom painted her kitchen the color called Frosted Fern. And for the last time, we don't care that your cat, Doogie Meowser, really looks like Neil Patrick Harris. Some more advice? In this tight economy, why waste money on a new vehicle? Stick with your older model and take good care of it to make sure it lasts. Come to Agco for quality maintenance and repair, and we'll save you from throwing money away on a big note so you can pay other bills or save for something else. In Facebook terms, that's something you'll definitely like. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. V8 motor in this smart and designed black convertible top and the gals don't mind. Sporting with me riding all around town for joy. Blow your horn, Raymond, blow well, welcome back. If you join us, this is the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, with special guest, Mr. Bob McCarran. Today we're talking about the history of the Chevrolet Motor Company and the Chevrolet Brothers and some of the developments along the way for Chevrolet and General Motors and how they more or less got to where they're at today. Because, Bob, just before the break, you were talking about Charles Kettering. And, of course, Kettering is a guy who brought us an electric starter and several other improvements. But he wasn't only an electrical engineer, apparently. That's right. He introduced the copper-finned, air-cooled, four-cylinder engine in 1923. This, of course, is way before the Volkswagen invasion. Yeah. in 1949. Air-cooled engine was really sort of way out there compared because everything was water-cooled. Alfred Sloan, who ran the company, questioned the reliability and practicality. Mm-hmm. But the GM president, Pierre DuPont, wanted to bring it out. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, it had uneven high cylinder temperatures and detonation problems. Yeah, well, those go along (laughs) hand in hand. (laughs) High temperatures at the rear cylinder, poor metallurgy, poor low grade of gasoline, all resulted in engine seizures. Hmm. So, that was a short time that they produced that engine. They recalled them all. In 1925, Chevrolet debuted the inline six-cylinder cast iron engine. Mm-hmm. In 1927, Chevrolet outsold Ford for the first time because Ford had shut down the production of 1926 T's and didn't bring out the new Model A's until 1928. Yeah, because that was model. a totally, just absolutely revolutionary change. That wasn't like going from, say, a modern-day Monte Carlo to a modern-day Impala. That was a absolutely revolutionary difference in cars from a Model T to a Model A. More or less from the absolute old style, almost a buggy with a motor on it, to a more of a modern-day sedan. That's right. And, of course, Henry Ford liked the Model T, and he would have probably kept producing that if it weren't for Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. 
And they produced the Model A's from 1928 through 1931 models. Well, in 1927, General Manager Lawrence Fisher commissioned Harley Earl. That's when he first got involved. The 1927 LaSalle car, mm -hmm. which was the Cadillac companion car from 1927 through 1940. It was a lower-priced Cadillac. Okay. Earl's background was custom cars. He worked in a company in California founded by his dad before joining General Motors. Earl and General Motors president, Alfred Sloan, created the art and color section of GM, which in 1937 became the styling section. Before that, the manufacturers didn't really look at styling that much. No, because people just basically wanted a car that would run, and I mean, I guess our expectations were a whole lot less. But as cars got better and better, it's one of those things, you know, the more devil gets, the more devil wants. <laughs> Sloan and Earl implemented the annual model changes and pricing tier going from Chevy, Pontiac, Olds, Buick, Cadillac. Without That way they did not compete with each other. They maybe overlapped a little bit in prices range, but for the most part, they had their own categories and their mm -hmm. own brands were associated with the price categories. The other companion cars were introduced. There was a less expensive Pontiac in 1926 that was the Oakland's companion car would eventually replaced. Mm -hmm. And of course, Pontiac was produced from 1926 through 1910. Or 2010. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, an awful lot of people still remember Pontiacs. In fact, I'd say most people still remember the Pontiac. A lot of people don't realize they've actually quit building them. It's a recent orphan car, along with the Plymouth, Oldsmobile, Mercury, and some others. Well, it replaced, back then, Oakland in 1933. Another companion car was the Viking companion to Oldsmobile, it was more expensive than the Oldsmobile. Okay. And it was produced from 1929 to 1931. The Marquette was the Buick companion car, and it was produced from 1929 through 1931, and oh. it was less expensive than Buick. And then, of course, you had the LaSalle and the Cadillac. Mm -hmm. So there were nine brand lineups going from Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oakland, Oldsmobile, Viking, Marquette, Buick, LaSalle, and Cadillac. Wow, and that's all just from General Motors. Yes. And not to count all the other companies that were on the market. Quite a few companies at that time. Of course, I guess we had a pretty big marketplace because not that many people owned cars back then, so just about everyone needed a car, or at least everyone who could afford a car. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Chevrolet in 1929 used the 50 horsepower, 194 cubic inch overhead valve stove boat 6. Mm -hmm. That stove boat was made for 80 years 1929 to 2009. It also went to Brazil. It was fuel injected in 1999 engine in Brazil. The Atlas LL8, which is an interesting engine and a subject by itself that I don't know a whole lot about, <laughs> was made until 2009. And Toyota, with a different head, was using that engine from 1955 to 1974. Wow, so it really got around. And the name derived from the quarter inch by 20 slotted head boats like were used on the unwelded wood-burning stoves. Yeah, so that's that the name stove boat because it had stove boats for head boats. <laughs> <laughs> In 1929-1930, Ford returned as the sales leader and outsold right. Chevrolet. Well, once they got back into production, full, full swing of production. And, of course, for folks who aren't history buffs, you got to remember what was going on in the United States at that time. 1929 was the beginning of the Great Depression. So I imagine there was probably some more of a drop-off in the sale of cars, period, at, at that time, just because of the general economy was in such a bad, bad state of affairs. That's true. But in 31-32, Chevy regained the sales lead by dropping prices below Ford, mm -hmm. offering upscaled Fisher-appointed interiors, while Ford was putting his effort into developing the flathead V8, which arrived late. 
March in 1932. Mm -hmm. So more or less just kind of caught them napping. Yes. <laughs> That's sort of the way that it works even today in that if one company sees a little niche in the market, they will definitely exploit that. And, and all companies do that, not only car companies, but sometimes just one little thing can really put sales way out there. And of course, the price drop at a time when the economy of the United States was in probably the worst shape it's ever been in until recently. <laughs> yes. Didn't hurt matters at all. Ford was engineering up a bigger engine, more powerful, all this. Well, they just exploited that little need and brought out a lower price car at a time when price was a real big selling point. Yes, and then in 1933, Chevrolet brought out some advancements, a synchromesh transmission, mm -hmm. knee action front suspension. That's a little controversy on how well that worked. <laughs> <but> <laughs> in 1935, the Suburban, a coupe pickup truck, forerunner of the El Camino. Right, now that Suburban is not exactly the same as what we call a Suburban today, although the name is the same. That's true. 1936 ended the Cunson's overhead valve, four-cylinder production. Mm -hmm. And in 35 and 36, Chevy used the Olds L-Head 213. 37 and 38, they used the Olds L-Head 230 cubic inch. And 1937, they brought out the second generation of the stove boat, overhead valve, six, 216 cubic inches. Mm -hmm. And that was in use through 1952. Yeah, I've actually seen and worked on those engines. That's not going back that far, I guess, <laughs> relatively speaking. <laughs> Depends how old you are. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the late 20s and the early 30s, the competition improved, both the Ford and the Chevy. In some years, the two together sold over one half of all the new cars. And that's in the entire world. That's right. Not just in the United States. So that's quite an accomplishment when two companies out of basically dozens of companies are selling half the cars in the entire world. And that includes all of Europe. This shows that uh, competition is good. That's right. Uh, both companies improved themselves and brought out many advancements. In 1939, Chevy brought out the wood-bodied station wagon. In 1938, previous to that, Harley Earl, again, he built the what's called the Buick Y-Job. This was the industry's first factory experimental, or today called concept car. Yeah, well, now you see them quite a bit at Detroit Auto Show and so on. That's the concept car, stuff they may or may not actually ever produce. And that created vision into the future. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1941, Stoveboat Overhead Valve 6 increased to 235 cubic inches, was used through 1949. Mm-hmm. 1942 models included the Fleetwood Aero Sedan, a streamlined model. I just bought one of those. The only problem is I cannot drive it. It is only 124 scale yeah. made by the Danbury Mint. <laughs> Danbury Mint makes some really nice models. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Anybody interested in collecting model cars could look into that. Mm -hmm. 1942 January production ends for World War II production to begin. Right, well, December 7th, the United States enters the war. Of course, production on the cars has probably started August of the year previously in, in 42. So even though we call 42 models, actually very early in 42 is when production swung over to war production. And the big three produced the vast majority of rolling stock that was used in the war, considerable amount of hardware that was produced. And that went on, of course, until the end of war in 1945. And then, of course, the end of 1945, it took them a while to get back to production. So I think the 46 model was the next year model. A lot of folks don't realize, but there were no 43, 44, 45 model cars built pretty much anywhere in the world, at least not any civilian vehicles. Lots and lots of vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ford built 150,000 Jeeps and Willis built 150,000 Jeeps. But, yeah, uh, trucks. And trucks and so on and so forth. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break and we'll be back more on the Automotive Hour.
Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things that chap my hide lately. $150 jeans, vanity licenses that are too complex to read, billboards that say drive carefully. Think about that one. Child beauty pageants. I mean, let's go ahead and set these kids up for failure before they get to kindergarten. And how about when you try to be nice and let someone out in traffic and they won't go because they're talking on the cell phone? Here's a message for you. Put the phone down! Another thing that chaps my hide is repair shops that use Swaptronics to fix your car. That's where they can't pinpoint the exact problem, so they just change parts, hoping to fix something, which means your repair bill could double. The experts at Agco determine the exact problem, then fix it right the first time, at the price quoted, which does not chap my hide. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. I woke up this morning. I had to pawn my shoes. I woke up this morning. I had to pawn my shoes. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, this is the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, and today's show is a pre-recorded show. i got Mr. Bob McCarron in the studio, and we're talking about Chevrolet, the Chevrolet Motor Company, the history of Chevrolet, and some of the models that they produced over the years, how they got to where they're at today. And when we stopped off just before the break, Mr. Bob, we were talking about World War II had just begun. Of course, as the war went on, they produced all sorts of vehicles and mechanized devices and so on. Chrysler built a bunch of tanks. 1946, the war is over, and production resumed. Yes, and they were essentially the same as the 42 models. Mm -hmm. In 1948, the all-new Chevy and GMC trucks were brought out, and those body styles were carried through to the early 1955 models. Mm -hmm. In late 1955, they introduced new bodies for the trucks with Harley Earl styling, wraparound windshields, lots Mm -hmm. of chrome. And you know, 48 to 49 was a sort of a big break in cars. I know people who collect custom cars, a lot of them, they're pre-48 guys or post-49 guys. And when the war ended, there was pretty much a whole world wanting everything that we could build. And so they really didn't have any big incentive to get out and redesign anything. They just kind of took the old stuff, stuck it out there, and they snap it up as fast as they could produce it. Well, by 1949, people had gotten cars, so they had to get a little more creative to start selling things. And the same thing happened again, of course, in 1955. There was another sort of a revolution where they really started styling the cars up. Ed Coe co-headed the team to develop the 1949 Cadillac V8 engine for the Cadillac. In 1950, Chevrolet brought out a Powerglide two-speed automatic transmission. Mm-hmm. Also the hardtop, which had been brought out by Buick in 1949, followed by Cadillac. That was, the top didn't actually go down, but it was styled like a convertible. Right. That's the one that doesn't have a B-pillar. In other words, the driver's door glass closes against the rear glass so that when all the windows are rolled down the entire side of the car is open and that's called a hard top as opposed to a sedan or a coupe which has a post in the middle correct and they were very stylish to go along with that in 51 the third generation redesigned overhead valve six cylinder was brought out by chevrolet which lasted through 1962 model year right 
1952, Ed Cole became chief engineer of the Chevrolet division and collaborated with Zorro Arcus Duntoff. Right, boy, that's a name any, any performance guy <laughs> in, the, in the Chevrolet business would know a whole, whole lot about. Duntoff, of course, we talked on our show when we were speaking about the flathead V8. He's actually made the, the R-Dunn overhead valve head to fit the old flathead Ford engine. So right, he was he quite a creative guy, a very, very performance-oriented guy. So he fit along in the Chevrolet organization very well. He produced a, an aluminum overhead valve for the flathead Ford, mm-hmm. and he also developed the small block V8 and improved the Carvette performance. 1953 was when the Carvette came out. They had a concept car right before that, that Arcus Duntoff is known as the father of the Carvette because he wrote a letter to Ed Coe prior to them hiring him. Ed Coe was the chief engineer, and Duntoff proposed performance improvements for the Motorama Carvette, which came out prior to the actual production of the Carvette. Mm-hmm. When he joined GM in 1953, he changed the Chevy division into a youthful performance company with the Carvette and the small block V8. This is similar to what John DeLorean did in the 60s with Pontiac. Right. And everything a youth image. Right. That uh, small block V8 arguably is the most successful engine that Chevrolet ever had. They came out in 1955 as a 265 cubic inch and they built it all the way up until around 1999, even 2000 in a few of the models. And really the six cylinder 4.3 liter that's still being produced today is basically the same exact engine just with two of the cylinders lobbed off of it yes that's a very good they get over three hundred thousand miles with no problem <laughs> well that's why that's the truck i bought <laughs> the old truck i got got a six cylinder in it and you know, I had to go to special effort to get a six cylinder in that truck the salesman just almost didn't want to sell it to me he's like you need a v8 no 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 i want a six cylinder i mean he just argued with me and argued me finally said, look you might talk yourself out of a truck here bub so finally he agreed to sell me the six cylinder and i've been just real happy of course based on my experience of working on an awful lot of v8s and six cylinders i knew which one i wanted we see considerably less problems with the six cylinder motors than we do the v8s on chevrolet especially nowadays i was looking for a vehicle that wouldn't give me any trouble hey we're going to take one more quick little break but we'll be right back with more in the automotive hour Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things I'm tired of. I'm tired of reality TV. There's nothing real about it. I'm tired of all those housewives, the Kardashians, the brides, the bachelors, celebrities in rehab. Here's an idea. Let's ship all the Flavor Flav, Snookies, and Honey Boo Boos off to a deserted island and watch America's average IQ jump up a few points. I'm also really tired of automotive repair shops that promote an $89.95 brake job and then hit the folks for $500 and give them a lousy job. Listen to me and take your vehicle to Agco where you get quality work performed right the first time for a reasonable price. And that, my friends, is a reality. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco. It's the place to go. Well, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, president of Agco Automotive. And while today's show is pre-recorded, if you have a question, you just send me an email. Go to our website. It's www.agcoauto.com. That's A G. C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. And, of course, that stands for Altazan's Garage Company. Sort of an easy way to always remember exactly what the URL is, 
agcoauto.com. Go to the contact bar. There's one on every single page. Send me an email, and I'll get an answer back to you within 24 hours. Of course, this beautiful long weekend, Ms. Aldazan and I decided to take a little break, and we're in one of our favorite places in the entire world, and that would be Orlando, going out to see the Disney resorts. Disney's always been real special to us, so every time we get a chance or a little break in the action where we can get out for a long weekend, we try to make it out here. So having a real good time, but that doesn't mean I don't have time to answer your email. It may take me just a little bit longer than normal, but it won't be too bad. Just go ahead and send me an email. Just go to the website, send the email out. I'll get an answer right back to you. And while you're on there, be sure you look around the detailed topics. Lots and lots of good information on a specific topic. Probably more than you'd ever want to know about any given topic. If you have just a short question, you might go to the vehicle questions. You can do a little search and it'll bring up just a to-the-point answer to a direct question. Like, for instance, what does the W in 10W30 motor oil mean? It's in there. And, of course, if you want to understand more about motor oil, viscosity and what viscosity means, what kind of oil should you use, should you use synthetic or regular oil, all those sorts of things, that'll be in a detailed topic section. Just a whole lot more information on a specific topic. Now, there's lots and lots of other things you can do on the site as well. You might go to the fun section. There's an Agco quick quiz there where you can win a free Agco t-shirt. Just fill out all the information and send it in. I'll get that sent out to you USPS. Of course, that is a limit of one to the household, unfortunately, and it does have to be in the continental United States. That's one more fun little thing you can do. Of course, if you'd like to listen to the Automotive Hour live and you don't happen to live in the Baton Rouge area, you can go to the podcast section of our site. It says radio show and podcast. If you click on that particular page, it's going to bring up a picture of a little stopwatch with an automatic countdown. And that counts down the time to the next automotive hour and is accurate anywhere in the world. It tells you how many days or hours or minutes are remaining until the next show comes on. If you wait until it gets down to one hour before the show and then just click on the little stopwatch, it'll actually bring you to a link on iHeartRadio, which you can listen to a live feed of the show. So that way you can actually call in on the days that we were actually here, not in the pre-recorded show. Unfortunately, today you're going to have to listen on the podcast. Now, if you register on the website, which is very, very easy, there's no cost, of course, you can get additional rights. You can go to the archives, and you can download previous shows up to one year in the past. So you can have one year of Automotive Hours at your fingertips right there on the website. Tons and tons of things you can do. I think you'll really, really like it. It's www.agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Spend a little time on there. I think you'll really have a good time. Now, today we're talking to Mr. Bob McCarron, one of my favorite folks in the whole world. Bob is an expert older cars. He owns several of them himself, and he was kind enough to come in. Today we're talking about the history and evolution of the Chevrolet Motor Car Company. Now, Bob, just before the break, we were talking about the Carvette. Well, in 1953, the Carvette it was a six-cylinder. It was the stoveboat. They called it Blue Flame. Right. Had three side draft single carburetors mm -hmm. with the power glide transmission and the dual exhaust. Right, was, split exhaust manifolds on right, it. It was a fiberglass body. Mm -hmm. So that was a, America's first sports car, although they had some competition from some other companies, American companies like the Kaiser, Darren, Nash Healy, and so forth. But mm -hmm. they survived through the years. So yeah, even today. In 1955 was when they brought out that small block V8, as Lewis said, mm -hmm. 265. New styling, the big Chevrolet had a three models. Yeah, the three models was the Model 150, which was also known as a businessman's coupe, just sort of a stripped-down little model, not much chrome, not very many obsessions on it, something that a businessman might want to buy just to go to work and back. 
Then they had the 210, which was their standard sedan, which had a little bit more chrome and a few more accessories. And then, of course, the Bel Air was the top-of-the-line flagship model. In fact, my first car that I ever owned was a 55 Chevy two-door hardtop Bel Air. Real, real nice car. They also had the Nomad station wagon and Dinah Shore, who sang that song, See the USA in Your Chevrolet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> she had her TV show and really promoted the Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. 1956, Cole became general manager of Chevrolet. Later in 67, he became GM president. Well, back to 56, the Pikes Peak records. Uh, Cole was responsible for getting the Carvettes and the Chevrolet sedans to break the records in their categories. That brought a lot of notoriety to Chevrolet. And then in 57, Rochester Mechanical Fuel Injection. Right. On the 283... Gave Chevrolet one horsepower per cubic inch. However, Ford outsold Chevy by 10% in that year. Mm-hmm. But then later, Chevrolet has since become one of the icons of the 50s, the 57 Chevy. The uh, horsepower race was in full motion. In 57, you had the competition F-Code Supercharged Fords and Supercharged Studebaker Golden Hawks, the dual quad Plymouths, the 327 Rambler Rebels, which mm-hmm. were the fastest of all from the factory. Beep, beep. Yep, there you go. <laughs> you remember that little song? Oh, yeah. Little I'm... Nash Rambler, how do I get this car out of second gear? <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> it's true. True story. Those things could do 90 miles an hour in second gear. Probably good. Yeah, I rode in one. <laughs> <laughs> in 1958, first Impala, available with the 348, and also the, the 283. Right, the 348 and the 409 were the same series of engines. That was the old W block engines. They didn't build them very long, I think up to 61. But those are some very, very powerful old engines. A lot of people think that the big block Chevrolets, like the 396 and the 427, was the same engine, but it was a totally separate family of engines. Uh, It was different from the small block. It was different from the later big block. It was an engine only built for those years. Yes, and, of course, in 58 was a big styling year. Harley Earl was responsible for styling. So he's the guy. (laughs) Yeah, play models, colors, fins, wrapping windshields, hardtop sedans, two-tone paint. And, you know, I always loved the 55 Chevrolet. I guess I've probably owned 20 of them over the years, and I've probably owned 5 or 10 57 Chevrolets, but the 58 just really left me cold. I just (laughs) didn't like it, boy. Just the styling to me was just big and boxy. And, of course, at the time, I guess it was good, but it just wasn't the same as the 55 and 57s were. Yes, the story is that the designers from GM ran over to look at the new Plymouths that were in the factory and saw what the advanced fins and styling were, and they were way behind. So mm-hmm. they ran back and started on the 59 models. So That was the Har- year of the fin. Yes, <laughs> the big fins. Harley Earl retired after the 59 designing those models, and he was succeeded by Bill Mitchell, who was responsible for the 49 Coupe de Ville Cadillac, mm-hmm. the, the 55-57 Chevrolet Bel Airs, mid-60s Buick Rivieras and the 63 Carvette Stingray with Bill Mitchell's split window, similar to 57 Buick split windows, mm-hmm. three-piece. Mm-hmm. 59 was uh, Extreme Fins, and also the first El Camino was wow. built in 59. And that's another vehicle that I've owned several of. Uh, I guess I've owned four or five El Caminos. I always liked the vehicle because it drove and handled much like a car, but it still could haul stuff like a pickup truck. So it was a real good vehicle. I was sort of sad when GM decided to drop that because I thought it kind of hit a niche. Ford actually had the Ranchero, which was sort of a similar vehicle, sort of a truck car. And those have actually become sort of a collector thing now. There's almost a cult following on them, on the El Caminos. I know I always really enjoyed mine. Like I said, it rode and handled very, very much like a car, but you had the pickup truck bed in the back where you could actually haul some stuff around. Yes, there's a big club 
national club and local clubs for the mm-hmm. both the Rancheros and the El Caminos. So. Yep, there you go. In 1962, a Chevrolet brought out the third generation six cylinder, which lasted through the 1988 big car Chevrolets. Mm-hmm. They made interesting interchangeability between the big block V8, mm-hmm. the small block V8, and the stove boat six cylinder Chevy engines. The bell housing starters and automatic transmissions were all interchangeable between any of those engines. Yeah, that was really a big improvement. They could take a real lesson from that today because, boy, with all the proliferation of parts they got, I think it was a great idea then, and I think it would be a great idea today. Standardization cuts costs and really makes things better because you can concentrate your effort proving them rather than making a thousand renditions of the same thing. It also ends the errors of parts ordering that you have today where you got to try to order a set of brake pads for a Chevy truck and you have to know VIN number, you have to know this, you have to know that and sometimes even that isn't enough. You have to actually look at the part on the truck to see what part they put on this particular model. It just has to cost a whole lot more. Of course another huge leap forward in 1962 was the 327 cubic inch small block Chevrolet. Real real power plant. That had the nice four-inch bore with a three-and-a-quarter-inch stroke, so it was capable of some pretty high RPM usage and it still produced a great amount of torque. Real big improvement over the 283, which was just a little bit underpowered. That 327 came in several different renditions of horsepower. I think it came up the smallest one, maybe it was a 200-horsepower two-barrel version, all the way up to a 375-horsepower fuel-injected version of the same engine. Of course, there was lots of in-between as well. I know there was a 300-horse, a 325-horse, and I think even a 350-horsepower 327. Just a real, real, real versatile engine. I saw the forerunner of the 350 or the 5.7, which came later. The 5.7 had the same bore, the 4-inch bore, with just a little bit longer stroke. But in my opinion, it sort of lacked something that the 327 offered. It just couldn't turn up quite as many RPM as the 327 could. Always one of my favorite engines. When I used to race cars many, many years ago, that was always my engine of choice, was the 327. And for a very short while, from 1967 to 1969, it took basically the 327 block with the 4-inch bore and a 283 crankshaft, although it had a larger main bearing, and made a 3-inch stroke with a 4-inch bore or a 302 cubic inch engine. That was offered in a Z28 only. It was a special engine just for that one car and put out an astounding 290 horsepower right from the factory. Really was sort of underrated. I think it put out a little more than 290, but that's what they rated them. Those were real screamers. And a lot of folks would actually take the 327 block, put the 283 crank in, and build their own 302 cubic inch Chevrolets. I guess it would come out to a 5 liter today, but that was a very limited production engine in the Z28 only. Hey, I tell you what, we have just about squandered a perfectly good hour. And I want to thank you for coming in and being with us, Mr. Bob. We really appreciate all the insight into the Chevrolet Motor Company, 100 years and still going strong. Well, and, I like being here. Thank you. Yeah, maybe you can come back and be with us again. All right. All right. Hey, I want to tell everybody how much I appreciate them being with us this morning and every Saturday morning on Automotive Hour. Preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.